0: Should we sympathize with resentment? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Michelle Schwerzy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Michelle Schwarze. Michelle is the Jack Miller Center Assistant Professor of Political Science. Her research centers on the passions in the history of political economy, especially in the 18th century moral and political theory, and the works of Adam Smith. Her work has been published in the American Political Science Review, Journal of Politics, and American Political Thought. She currently serves on the Executive Committee of the International Adam Smith Society. Her first book, Recognizing Resentment, will form the basis of our conversation today. Michelle, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: And we're happy to have you on. So Michelle, we base each of our episodes on a general question and go wherever the answers and discussion takes us ultimately. Our question today that we have is, should we sympathize with resentment? And we should probably start by defining exactly what we mean, of course. So my first question to you really is, let's start there. What exactly do you mean by resentment?
1: Well, that's a great question, given that I think that term is pretty hotly contested. And so um, it's something that I try to uh, introduce and define at the outset of the the book to uh, put my cards on the table. So I appreciate the offer to do that here, too. Um, When I think about resentment, we think about an affective, negative affective response to harm or injury. Um, properly considered its injury. So it's often related to the anger um, that we have uh, at sort of various responses to stimuli, but usually resentment in particular is so defined as something that is a um, negative response to an injury Um, that I make the argument in the book has some deliberative element. So it's not just an instinctive response, but it has a potential to be something that you think about and consider, for example, whether or not there was an actual injury, who did the injuring, what were the circumstances that led to it uh, and so forth. Um, so that's how I, think about resent- resentment uh, especially from the first personal perspective as distinct from anger.
0: Right. So we're distinguishing like if someone for instance made a comment that like insulted me I might, I might say oh I, re- I resent that right but but you're saying that it could be a more of a thought out a, not only an emotional response initially but more of like a thought out sort of state of emotion almost it doesn't have to be something that's either flippant or sort of reactionary right?
1: Right. I think we often colloquially now think of resentment as a perception of unfairness and really the kind of resentment I'm talking about in the book is a response to injury, right? That's the because um, the, the book is really making the case for the political value of resentment. And that that emotional response that we have to real injury um, has a lot of political value in terms of justice. Whereas concerns about fairness and unfairness are obviously wrapped up in our um, political life. John Rawls had a lot to make of uh, make out of our, our concern for unfairness. Um, but really what I'm concerned with, right, is the resentment that's a response to injury.
0: So, and another sort of general principle as part of the discussion, the larger discussion in your book. And I always, I always say to our, our listeners when, when we're discussing someone who has a book either forthcoming or already out, like, there's no way we're going to cover everything here. Cause we're not going to read the book together sort of, but, but as I try to pull out general principles to explore, one of them is also the idea that, you know, there's often sort of a reaction to resentment, right? Like people often are quickly repulsed. By others' resentment-driven attitudes or actions, kind of thing. And, and another part of the discussion today is also how you want to encourage people. I'm going to make sure I don't word salad this, but not to be repulsed by the resentment that others might have, kind of thing. Because there's actually some, you know, productive aspects to this, right?
1: Yeah, um, that's great. So I think what I'm what the, what I'll suggest the point of the book is is to get people to consider their resentment, uh, both their own resentments and especially the resentments of others. Um, so it's not, you're, you're right, um, part of the difficult thing is often overcoming the natural repulsion that we have to really negative emotions. The I'd say the hero of my book is Smith, Adam Smith, perhaps unsurprisingly for somebody who's done as much work on Smith um, as I have. Um, but one of Smith's arguments about resentment which he sees as the pillar of justice, sort of our natural emotional support for justice, um, is actually that it's really hard for other people to adopt it on behalf of others. So that's really hard for me to enter into the resentments of other people because it just feels kind of gross and bad, right? We don't like necessarily being um, mean if we don't know the circumstances. So the push for the book in many different from, from many different perspectives is really to not get rid of resentment, not necessarily reject it outright, but start considering what we're resentful about um, why we're resentful about it, who's resentful, those kinds of serious questions um, that make up the, the bulk of our moral deliberations rather than to say, oh, resentment's a bad emotion, or resentment's unserious, resentment's not an, an actual reaction to injury.
0: And carrying that thought further, so you also make the distinction, of course, and you talked about Adam Smith, so we may as well get to that note now, which is the the idea that it's not a just about under, understanding uh, when, for instance, yourself or others have their own level of resentment, but the idea that we can also sympathize with the resentment of others and that this is a productive factor. So, um, you know, I, I think you also talked about, like, you know, spectatorial re- resentment. So can you get it a, a bit into that and unpack that sort of this, this idea that it's not just that I resent something, for example, because something happened to me or I've been done an injustice, but we can also tap into the, the resentment of others, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's exactly what it is. In fact, you're, that's the the real argument of the book is, right, we're, it's not so important the resentment that we feel on our own behalf, or it, it, it is. But the more important thing in terms of supporting liberal conceptions of justice is thinking about um, other people's resentments and doing what we can to understand those resentments or to recognize them hence the name of uh name of the book um and uh to puni- punish appropriately on their behalf when possible right to support people who suffer injustice so spectatorial resentment um, is the kind of culmination of uh, I talk about spectatorial re- resentment in the culmination of the book in the Smith chapter, and it's really um, the resentment that we feel on behalf of others that we put through a deliberative process. So we try to not just um, identify or not identify or like or dislike someone else's resentment, say based on uh, whether or not they're family or how close they are to us, right? Um, But it's the reflective kind of resentment that we have once we've deliberated about all of those things that I've suggested, who the actual victim of an injury is, whether or not there was an injury or if there was a misfortune, uh, who a criminal was that imposed that injury, um, and then what the appropriate response to that is. So spectatorial resentment is second personal or third personal resentment, It's the resentment that we have on behalf of another person. And for Smith, it's ideally the resentment that we adopt when we've considered um, all of these circumstances I was describing from this um, goal, this uh, third person impartial perspective that Smith famously calls the impartial spectator. So the impartial spectator, kind of the name for the imaginary man within the breast, as he puts it, or what we might think of as our conscience, right? The The little angel dude sitting on our shoulder who explains to us, Um, what's good. um, And it's how we determine when things are merited or unmerited, not whether we like them or not, or we agree or disagree, but something a little bit more um, meaningful sort of and uh, normative
0: than that. D- diving a little deeper into the sort of the, the the Smithian part of the discussion too, because I think this is one of the keys to understanding the book as well. When we talk about like sympathizing with the resentment of others, we're talking in a very specific like Smithian way. It's not just the idea we're we're just simply taking pity on somebody, but, but the idea that we can almost, you know, see ourselves in their shoes kind of thing because of that joined human experience, basically.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, you know, if you take all of these terms have colloquial meaning, right, outside of their 18th century context or outside of the the arguments um, that I'm trying to make using them, which is if we just say we sympathized, I heard my neighbors say they sympathized with the, um, you know, with the resentment of a friend of theirs, I would assume what they meant was something like um, they felt sorry for this person who was angry about something.
0: Right, they feel bad or, or whatever. Right,
1: they feel bad, right? And you're exactly right that sympathy in the 18th century um, Smith develops it out of this tr- tradition of compassion and pity which usually meant feeling bad for someone or perhaps compassion feeling with someone but only um, uh, only in the sense of bad things very linked to say something like schadenfreude when you look at Rousseau's Jean-Jacques Rousseau's concept of pity, Um, which is, you know, we're really glad we feel bad for a person, but we're really glad we're also not in those bad circumstances, right? Um, And for Smith, as I usually teach him or talk about him, the really revolutionary way that he thinks about sympathy um, is perspective taking, right? Or what we might call empathy today, in general what psychology research um, discusses is empathy today. So sympathizing with someone for Smith isn't just feeling bad for them, isn't just um, instinctual, although he wants to suggest at base it is, it importantly has all of those deliberative elements that I was already talking about, right? For Smith, sympathy has this potential to be really, really fortify common bonds with other people um, and to be really reflective about their nature, our nature, Sort of what good reactions are in certain circumstances, or it's all about uh, this norm that you get from these sympathetic interactions or forming that norm that Smith calls propriety, right? Figuring out what's appropriate in a host of different circumstances. That's what sympathy gets us, not something like. Whether we feel bad or not for someone,
0: right? Exactly, and linking that up to another element you traced before, which is just you know the idea that uh, like uh, like that justice comes into play here. Like you said, it's not just like feeling bad that something happens to somebody. It's it's the kind of empathy and and uh, sympathy you just described, plus this concept of justice when we're building our idea of resentment here, potentially. And one thing I, I noted that right in the intro of your book, you noted that especially when it comes to spectatorial resentment. Um, there's two factors to consider. It's not only sympathizing when someone is due respect, you said, but when they're also due uh, rectification. And I think that's a very important distinction to understand that they have to go together.
1: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, that's the, that's one of the crucial points about understanding what Smith means by sympathy, right? Because if I just resent, if I just uh, pitied someone, right, uh, that was injured or was angry or something like that, Usually that pity doesn't lead me to do anything other than feel bad. Or again, if we want to um, indulge Rousseau, then it leads me to be happy that I'm not in the same situation, right? But it's not anything like an emotion that pushes me to positively aid someone else to help them to consider the law as the appropriate means of fixing the situation, right? Um, Whereas sympathy, when we actually empathize with other people, when we go through this uh, deliberative process to consider actual injury, what a victim is going through right with the, the the way that I describe it in the book often is being sensitive or alive to the plight of the oppressed right When we think about what those things are, naturally if we do adopt the sympathies of are the resentments of others and consider them merited, then the thing that we want to do is figure out well how do we rectify this situation, right? And so how do we ensure that justice is done? And that's a big part of why resentment is such an important emotion for Smith and for the other thinkers in my book too.
0: And before I have a, some questions we're going to get to that are sort of about the more quote, practical application of the idea of resentment, and especially in the liberal project, But before we we leave this sort of section of our conversation, and um, when it comes to everything we've just talked about, and if people are listening right now and sort of piecing together what they understand resentment to be in the sense you're describing it, is there a way we can also help people understand that they can distinguish in a sense between a form of like justifiable resentment and unjustifiable resentment? Because as I was reading through, um, and obviously this will be naturally biased to some degree by the liberal perspective, but as I was reading through everything you were writing, it's it's clear that, you know, not every sense of resentment might be Logical, which is one thing, but also even justifiable in the larger scheme of things from the liberal perspective, at least.
1: Yeah, that's great. So again, I take Smith as a guide here for figuring out merited or unmerited, or if you're suggesting justifiable or unjustifiable resentment. Because the whole point is that's that's what we're getting at. It's not just saying everyone's experience of resentment um is valid and right. Instead, we're trying to think through whether there was actual injury, whether the reaction that that person has to the injury is appropriate given the nature of it. Um, And so I think a lot of figuring out when resentment is justifiable and when it's not hinges on considering whether there was a harm done, was something that was uh, unavoidable, something where there wasn't intention necessarily at play versus whether there was an actual injury to someone. You can identify an actor that, um, inflicted the injury right whether uh there whether you can't sympathize with a supposed criminal um whether that action was avoidable right so there's you can assign blame and therefore you can uh, assign demerit to uh an action um that's how you start to figure out justifiable versus unjustifiable resent- resentments and so you can also see I think um in in talking about that how that process is quite, It's a good word for that. Well, this isn't a good word for it, but cognitive, right? It's not just we feel these things. It's also we have to think through um, the circumstances to to consider whether or not this resentment is appropriate or not.
0: Right. It's both like an intellectual and a visceral thing is another way of putting it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's one, perhaps one of my favorite things about the Scottish Enlightenment. One thing that I think often gets lost um, in the conversation about reason and passion is sort of going head to head, right? Or the missing Hume is, um, uh, you know, a big character in my book, he's, uh, makes up the, uh, the second to last chapter, um, and famously, right, he has this line, reason is the slave of the passions, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions, um, that people famously misinterpret as reason having no role in actions, and Hume's point is, well, we can't, we can't make ourselves or convince ourselves about what we ultimately care about, about ends, but reason can really importantly help us explain what the best means are to achieve those ends, which are identified by passion. Um, And so Hume and Smith and Joseph Butler, another character in the um, book, all of these thinkers really see, I think, the emotions and our reason is working together. A different way of putting that is that you know part of what it means to morally uh to have a moral life is to be a moral reasoner and that includes using information that you get from emotions as well as reflecting about uh what the what the information is
0: and actually you mentioned Adam Smith uh, a couple times we spent some time on on his thinking and then you also just mentioned David Hume there so i wanted to actually quick sidebar sort of on on uh, some of the thinkers specifically that really form the foundation of a lot of your thinking and and some of the um some of the arguments Uh, for the moral and political worth of resentment that you said you were sort of rehabilitating in this book, you said in the intro, Um, you identify three specific thinkers, Joseph Butler, David Hume and Adam Smith. And this is sort of like ultimately an unfair question. And I recognize that like to sort of summarize some of their ideas, but but just at a very high level, can you sort of, uh, we've already did a bit with Smith, but for instance, with Joseph Butler and David Hume remaining, can you kind of like grab a couple of key highlights and talk a bit about the kinds of Uh, thoughts that they had and the kind of work that they did that is informing our discussion today and your work. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I should say there's also the first substantive chapter of the book talks about the context in which this account of resentment as an innocent motive uh, for justice emerges in the 17th and early 18th century. So the 17th, uh, so that chapter, excuse me, is about Hobbes and Spinoza and Mandeville and explains how essentially in the 17th century um, you start to get this discussion of uh, the passions. Even though we tend to think of the 17th century as the you know era of the of reason, right when reason reigns supreme, there's actually quite a bit of um, and uh, quite a bit of work from 17th century authors on. Why the passions are important, what role they can play in making us social or unsocial, right? Um, Or especially making us social or unsocial in large diverse societies. And, but generally, what you get is a concern with how immoderate they are, the kinds of consequences they lead to, and the fact that they are irrational, that we just see the passions as inconsistent with reason. And that's Hobbes' account and Spinoza's account, for example. And then Mandeville, um, for, for you know those of your listeners who are familiar with Mandeville, um, you have this wonderful writer who embraces all of the kind of nasty things about things that we want to turn away from as parts of um, uh, political and economic life. And so you would think he would embrace an emotion like resentment and actually for Mandeville, even though he's fine talking about how self-interest will lead to good public um, benefits, resentment is too honest of an emotion for him. So it doesn't, it's not that it's an emotion that's out of step with reason because he's not arguing for reason, um, as the, the sort of unifying motive for positive social outcomes, it's just that resentment is going to keep people away from indulging in vice in a in a way that's good for the economy and for society. And so then I start this um, the discussion of really resentment as an innocent or moral motive for justice with this really interesting character named Joseph Butler that most of us don't know today. I think he's pretty obscure um, even in philosophy and political theory. Um, though he was influential uh, for British utilitarians in the 19th century, and in some religious circles, he was an Anglican bishop um, who, interestingly enough, was committed to grounding his um, religious principles into a defense of God and sort of naturalistic, a um, uh, naturalistic moral psychology. And so he gives us gives us in his analogy of religion and in his 15 sermons from Rolls Chapel, which I um, engage with a lot in the book, this really interesting account of resentment, not just as a, a motive that might have good consequences, but is irrational or we should be concerned with the effects, but actually as this kind of chief evidence that we have for a concern for other people. And one of the chief uh, passions that we have for, um, again, strengthening that common bond that I uh, that I mentioned. So, um, uh, so excuse me, so Butler introduces resentment as a moral motive. He shows it ha- shows how we can feel it on behalf of other people. Um, and he links it to justice in, import- in an important way. So he's really um, incredibly in- influential um, on Hume and Smith, but also the first person to talk about resentment in that way. So that's why um, he's really the person I begin that that part of this story of the book with. Um, the trouble is he doesn't really explain how. So it gives us an example of how we might feel it on behalf of another person, why it's important for justice. But the things that we've already been talking about, when resentment's justifiable, how we can judge among our resentments, all those sorts of things. Butler doesn't really give us a good psychological account of that. He doesn't give us anything like um, the uh, an explanation of how what he calls deliberate anger, which is resentment, as opposed to, um, sudden anger, which is first personal anger, how, what that deliberation process looks like. So that's kind of missing. Um, and then ultimately he doesn't really have a full, uh, political theory. He has, uh, one speech that he writes in accession speech where he talks a little bit about his political, um, uh, leanings and something that looks like kind of a limited uh, argument for limited government. There really isn't, you know, you're kind of putting that together on your, on your own. There isn't anything like the political, um, uh, the account of justice that you'll get in humor, Smith. So that's what you get from Butler. That's what you're missing. So then I turn to Hume, who is kind of a tricky person to include in the book, um, as well as a useful one. And that's for for those of your listeners who are more familiar with Hume, they'll they'll probably know that he um, was um, adamant that justice, unlike Butler and unlike Smith after him, um, that justice is an artificial virtue rather than a natural virtue. And what Hume means by that is just that um supposedly justice has no natural motive or passion instead it's something that we have to create it's conventional It's a different way of putting it and really justice for hume is something like a private property regime right an agreement to to rules um, that protect uh property and so um it seems weird perhaps might seem weird perhaps for me to turn to him as someone who's interested in resentment as the motive for justice if, if he says that there isn't a natural motive for justice. And I make the case in the chapter that that's not quite right. Actually, if you look at Hume's work, he does have an argument about what the um, affective components of justice are. Um, It's something that he calls the sense of common interest or the common sense of interest. Alternatively, you might think of it as like social trust and that, 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 uh, that feeling or intuition that we can have that um, if we cooperate for mutual advantage, the other person's going to cooperate tr- too, right? So it's not just a rational consideration. Um, and what I suggest is that resentment lets us know, as Hume explains in his works, who we should consider uh, another subject of justice. So because um, people whose resentments we can feel are other people we consider subjects of justice, sort of explains something really important about that process. That also leads to the innovative thing in in Hume's thought, I think something that we get from him that we didn't have in Butler, that I think is a really important part of spectatorial resentment ultimately. And that is that implicit in um, that process, implicit in the recognition of another person's resentment as justified is a recognition that that person has a relatively equal moral and political status. In other words, I don't consider people who aren't on equal footing with me as people who are capable of being injured or people who deserve um, justice to be done, Right? who deserve rectification. So what's really neat um, that Hume brings out is really that relationship of equality, right, or that consideration of equal status that's implicit in the emotion that I also think is really important for things like liberals' commitment to um, uh, equality before the law, right? So Hume gives us that, um, and Butler didn't. Um, What Hume also says, however, and uh, and I should point out, I haven't said this too much yet, but you know, the story that I want to tell about spectatorial resentment isn't an overall, it's overall a good one, but it's not one that's uh, without um, pitfalls. That is all, I think, not all of these thinkers, but definitely Hume and Smith are very aware of some of the risks of resentment and some of the troubles that come along um, with them, psychological and social. And so Hume really gets us. Um, a a nice articulation of the concerns with two partial resentments. So what happens when I just adopt the resentments unthinkingly, right? Or unreflectively when I adopt the resentments of my friends or people who are say in the same political party that I am or of leaders. And then that's where he thinks kind of everything goes to shit. Right? So um, Hume really colorfully characteristically, um, in his six-volume History of England, just talks about many of these examples, right? What goes wrong in British politics and its history is when, uh, when people indulge too partial of resentments. And so you have religious wars or people persecuting one another for um, political or religious affiliation, or you have um, great men like Henry um, or even Elizabeth, to a certain extent, you have uh, political leaders who just indulge in resentments um, unreflectively. Right, um, really as a as a motive for vengeance rather than um, on interest in preserving or um, upholding justice. So that's what Hume gets us that some of that innovation, I think about a commitment to um, equal status implicit in resentment on the other on others behalf um, and uh, recognition that um, people who are subjects of um, our resentment are also subjects of justice but he also explains some of the real problems with um, not being able to adopt an impartial standpoint, just adopting the resentments of our friends or not being reflective about who we, who we resent and why, whether there was injury. So then I turn to Smith and what Smith gets us is really, as I've said already, the full psychological account of spectatorial resentment. So that is not just how I adopt the resentment of other people via sympathy, because Hume gets that too, but how do I make judgments about what's justifiable, what's merited and what's not, or what's appropriate, as Smith puts it, um, and what's not? How do I get out of the trap of partiality that Hume uh, that Hume is concerned with? Um, at the same time, he also kind of doubles down on, Hume, on Hume's point about uh, the considerations of equal status. So the phrase that Smith uses the most in theory of moral sentiments, interestingly enough, is this phrase that we are but one of the multitude in no respect any different than any other in it. It's the thing that the impartial spectator learns when he considers his own circumstances from the um, impartial perspective. That's the line that comes right after the famous pinky uh, person in China and pinky finger example, right? You, you regret the loss of your pinky finger more than a hundred thousand people um, in China to, a, to an earthquake because of proximity, right? which ultimately Smith says is bad. (laughs) People kind of forget that. They think, oh, he's really realistic about that. But his point is we need to try to overcome. It's incumbent upon us as um, ethical persons to try to uh, overcome that natural um, limitation. Um, And what we find is if we are are able to and adopt the impartial perspective, that we have this recognition that we're one of the multitude in no respect any better than any other in it. And so what we do when we're appropriately resenting on behalf of others, we're, we're recognizing, again, that kind of fundamental equal status in a really important uh, important way for Smith. The last thing I'll say, and then just to, to sum up, um, is that Smith, again, as I mentioned, very concerned about some of the social and also psycholo- individual psychological consequences of resentment. So on the one hand, it has this, real promise as an emotion to motivate us to to see the concerns of others, right, to see injustice when it happens and try to do something about it. On the other hand, he thinks even in the most well-administered of states, that's his language, um, that it's difficult to get rid of all injustice, even if we're well-intentioned, right, and we have a good setup state, it's kind of impossible to do that. And he often refers to this trope of the innocent man, um, as well someone who's unjustly accused and persecuted for actions um, and yet has has no other recourse to appeal. Um, And so Smith talks a lot about the psychological burden for individuals in those circumstances and for spectators in the first circumstance um, when when you adopt injustice and you don't see it rectified how uh, how troublesome that can be in our own mind, how disharmonious, um, and how often people um, use religion as sort of a thera- therapy um, to deal with that, to console them for kind of the lingering resentment they have. At I guess the best way of putting it is that, that this world um, doesn't do ultimate justice, right? We don't, exact justice is the phrase that he uses, and that's what's done in the afterlife, not what's done in this world. So there's, there's um a real uh appreciation i'd say for for religion and the, the therapeutic role that it can have in people's lives because of that
0: thank you for that that was like an excellent overview of all these thinkers like i said no no easy task and i think you that was awesome i think that was done very well because i think that provides a lot of different pillars that i, I want to dive into and ask you some follow-up questions on but right now that does take us right to our break so we're going to do that first and then then we'll resume so uh everyone you're listening to curious task i'm speaking with michelle schwarze today The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Joe Aragona, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Michelle Shoresy today. So Michelle, I think the first half was great. We we talked about uh what you mean by resentment and we provide a lot of great context for that. We then dipped into some key thinkers and that inform your thinking on this and some of the arguments that you're as in your words rehabilitating about the topic. And I said I had a couple of follow-up things uh to tie it more to like the liberal project overall before and uh and quote practical politics to some degree, just to to ground some of what we're talking about a, a, in, in different ways. So I'll start by saying this. So Based on everything we just talked about, if liberals then, to tie this to the liberal project, are those who, taking a lead as you did in your book sort of from Judith Schlar, you know, the people that want to secure political conditions that allow the most personal freedom and so on, then it seems like a lot of the liberal project overall uh, is, is based on liberals' tr- traditionally re- resenting a lot of things, again, in, in the way you described, right? Like whether it's the privilege of the state or the clergy or later on to not, of course, nothing's perfect in the tradition. So whether later on to starting to understand things like, like slavery, I mean, Adam Smith was pretty early on that, but, but nevertheless, without getting tied into that stuff, Um, again, it seems like a lot of the liberal project is actually, in fact, based on a kind of resentment or at least spectatorial resentment.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I guess the way that I would phrase it is also following Schlar, who uh, I'm thinking a lot about now. I'm starting a a project on her and she's, she's been deeply influential, Um, you know, is her, she's a great book toward the end of her life called The Faces of Injustice, which makes this argument that the history of political philosophy is not as great, especially ancient, not as great at thinking about injustice, really good about thinking uh, through what justice entails, right, and Rawls could be um, someone that you could, take to task on this too, but less good at thinking about injustice and focusing on that. And I think that's really what liberals in the way that she understands uh, that term and that I do um, should be concerned with. It's not so much, you know, setting up a perfect state or r- providing perfect justice in this world, right? Because those are impossible. And also we would be we should be very worried about anybody skeptical, right? Um, about anybody who um, has those uh, those grand projects, but we should be concerned with rectifying injustice understood as right um, uh, people not being able to have the, that uh, security for their personal freedom, right? And I think what ha- happens too often um, in some in some uh, liberal philosophies is we forget that. And what's great about um, these sentimentalists as they explain like how we are affectively oriented towards injustice, why that is a good thing, why liberal society should not try to get rid of that, but instead um, the, not foster it, but channel it, right? towards uh, Towards good ends, specifically at having the conversations about what injustice is, what injury is, what we can do about it. Those are serious, fruitful conversations um, that spectatorial resentment can get us involved in rather than things like, can we realize perfect just perfectly just institutions in the world? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But we could like, we could do a lot in the meantime to to fix a lot of the bad stuff that's out there, right?
0: Right. Yeah. And and and, ty- like, and continuing on that exact thought process. So again, it may seem counterintuitive to those. We're, we're just onboarding into this sort of idea of resentment. Um, you know, and and you were touching on some of them there. So I just want to go a little bit deeper into it. So I guess there are ultimately what you're saying some practical political benefits and positives. You know, and resentment again might seem counterintuitive at first blush, but like can actually end up being a productive force in our politics. I mean, again, people might requite resentment as like people lashing out. And as, as you were kind of saying before, you know, voting with no rationality whatsoever. Sometimes people often frame it like that, but, but you're basically saying, especially with this focus on injustice, that, you know, this can, for example, awaken people into thinking about the injustices of others, and that could be a productive political force, and so on. So so there are practical, like actually,, uh, you know, political benefits for the liberal project with resentment too being brought to politics.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'll take the the vignette that I have at the outset um, of the book in the introductions about the civil rights movement and about how um, Martin Luther King jr. Really, uh, he's writing a letter um, uh, after the Albany movement had kind of failed trying to get um, John F. Kennedy uh, to to, um, make a second emancipation proclamation to sort of recognize the the suffering of blacks in the South under Jim Crow, um, which obviously Kennedy never does. But part of his appeal is an affective appeal to say, look at the justified resentment of um, Black Southerners um, living under this institutional regime and can't we recognize this? And there's a nice uh, uh, speech that Kennedy gives um, parroting a lot of the uh, information that um, that King um, has in his letter. So I think, again, civil rights is one example to that. I, I think it gets misinterpreted and especially pundits are very bad in the media talking about economic resentment versus racial resentment but to the extent that we have good information about um the um the uh resentments of say a class of um uh disenfranchised whites in the united states who were sort of left they see themselves as being left behind by the economy and have real concerns about how the um the state can um, prevent additional injury, that that's something reasonable to pay attention to, too. Again, the question should be focusing on whether there's actual, what the actual injury um, is, and therefore, and then what the appropriate response to that is.
0: Right. So so the way I, I see you continually framing it too is that it's often not an end of it in and of itself in some context, but all, a gateway into further understanding of justice and injustice.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So how else could I describe this? I have a toddler, and uh, a lot of managing a toddler is trying to manage very big emotions, right? So what you find is that you can't, like, she gets pissed about anything that happens, right? That doesn't go her way. And trying to resist that just leads to like, that. that's a futile <laughs> task. The better thing to do is to try to redirect that or to suggest positive things. And I think, um, I don't think all uh, adults are just big toddlers, but I do think there's something to recognizing that emotions like resentment often have real, that's the point, right? Often have real bases and to suggest that they don't is Um, disrespectful and really not part of what the liberals should do broadly. We should be concerned with these uh claims of injury, right? And claims of injustice.
0: And and I'm just gonna throw sort of like a, a couple of like what some may view as like sort of quick hit objections to the idea that resentment might be a good thing in politics or channeling into it. And and by and for all those listening again when the book does come out, we encourage you to all go go check it out. I'm certainly not implying that this isn't covered or something and it's a gotcha, but I think it's it's a good lane way into different ways of tackling the discussion. So like, you know, there is someone might for instance say that um, you know, if, if we recognize resentment and understand that it can be productive, there's also people that are going to recognize that it can be productive for their own means, but maybe that doesn't end up being positive in the in the macro. Like, for example, you know, politicians clearly recognize that um, you can create resentment and that might ultimately be in unjust form of resentment, but but nevertheless, you can create it. And then it, it, the, the politics of divide and conquer ultimately becomes pointing resentments at each other. So that's when a lot of people come into play and say, well, this is the problem with emotional politics and focusing on injustice or even social justice. These things should be more rationally calculated. I know that's not a very pointed question, but I just thought to throw that out, you, out at you to get your, some thoughts on it because people will say, well, ultimately, it, the whole game uh, in the most cynical sense, is pointing resentments at each other justified or not?
1: Yeah, and I'm sympathetic to that, especially the manipulation of um, of the pu- of public passions, you might say, by demagogues or um, or corrupt politicians. Um, and I think that that's a real concern. I think what y- you kind of suggested. What my response is going to be um, in your in your question, right? Which is. But if we're really serious about what spectatorial resentment is and what the process is by which we determine which resentments are justified and unjustified, then the important thing can't just be that you're resentful or angry, right? It has to be you have to then say, okay, let's talk about what happened. What are what are you resentful for? What is the actual injury that happened? Was there injury? Was it harm? Who was the person doing the injury? What might be done about it? Those are so I think those conversations on the one hand have the beneficial um, uh, effect of cooling things down after the initial kind of anger. And two, they push people to, I mean, there are a lot of resentments that I think some people might say irrational, but instead of irrational, let's just say are unfounded. Right. And if what you find after seeing politicians just try to foment um, anger among their populace, Is just a bunch of angry people. Well, then we can say pretty reasonably, I think, that that's not, that that would be difficult to be justified. That isn't the kind of resentment that we're talking about. Um, And if we care about uh, either injustice or justice, that's not something we should focus on.
0: In, in your response there, one of the sentences you sort of said two things real quick, and I think they're very important because like you said, on the one hand, it's, it's understanding whether the resentment, you know, has a justifiable basis and so on and so forth. And then you said, and then what to do about it. And I think other people might say that there's also a risk in that latter part too, what to do about it. Like, even if someone... How would I put this? Even if someone recognizes that a certain resentment has a certain legitimate basis, and then we can say, for the sake of argument, most of us would agree that there is uh, a pain someone is feeling, for instance, that is justified and they've been hard done by, or that they have had an injustice done to them and that needs to be rectified. That second part of the conversation is very important, you know, as well, how to rectify it. I'm sure there's a lot of people would say, even if we all agree on the first part, there's also sort of this risk of sort of that you know, do good or tyranny that you always hear about that someone might go and rectify it in such a way that, you know, does actually more harm than good.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the what the follow up has to be that the appropriate means for Smith and the the rest of these thinkers might talk about in the book is like this liberal, strong, liberal commitment to the rule of law, which is perhaps more important now <laughs> than uh, than it has been um, uh, for a while, right? That the what we want to resist, and this I think goes along with anger um, on your own behalf or resentment on your own behalf—that's unconsidered—is um, vigilante justice. What you said is do good or too, and I think that's that's one risk. We might just say like the the idea that you get to be judge, jury, and executioner, right? You get to determine what's right, what's wrong, and then uh, and then dole out punishments or rewards is just not, that's not part of the liberal project, right? Instead, what happens is we have this discussion about whether there was injury and then what the appropriate means to do about it uh, is. And then this supports a liberal commitment to write the law. Now, as I mentioned, people like Smith, especially say, recognize that that might that might be insufficient in certain cases, right? That there might be a demand for uh, exact justice that won't be realized by the system of law. But what we do not do is we do not still take things under our own, into our own hands or dole out punishments on our own behalf, right? And I think in part, spectatorial resentment has a good way to moderate that. We're be resenting on behalf of another person gives us a little bit of perspectival distance, right? Um, from just, we get angry and then we are violent or we um, we decide to, um, to fix things in our own way. Um, but it also, again, because of this deliberative process shows us how law um, and the means of punishment that we've set up are the appro- appropriate means um, to deal with those issues.
0: And, sh- and shifting gears a little bit, but sort of in the same vein, like, you know, there are some people right now, um, you know, talking a lot about, you know, whether it's how it's caused or where it's at, polarization, especially in the American scene right now in American politics. But specifically, there's also some people doing a lot of work on like how social trust, and you mentioned that before, is, is tied to that. Um, so one might say that even if resentment can be a useful tool and produce some positives, like so for example, we might take a situation where we recognize uh, an injustice and that needs to be rectified. Um, I guess some may say there's also the risk that resentment also might negatively affect sort of the default level of trust that we have for people in society. That is to say, if there's a group of people doing an injustice, knowingly or not, to another group of people or, or whatever the case may be, we sort of start building the attitude that, well, that group over there is wrong. They're the ones causing the injustice. So we're not therefore looking at them in, in, in the same way as ourselves. We're looking at them as a group not only for that injustice to be resented, but the group to be resented as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, you're talking a little bit about this risk that I I said Hume mentioned, right, this idea of partial resentment so the idea that we have such strong group affinity as as psychologists have been um, uh, demonstrating for a while now that um, we're just likely to adopt the resentment unthinkingly, the resentments um, and affinities of our group. And that's it. There's an out group and an in group. And we support everything the in group does. And we easily set up these distinctions between in and out group, right? And so, doesn't resentment support that? My answer would be again if you fall into the partial <laughs> group, if you're not actually going through the appropriate deliberative process to take this impartial perspective. And to consider the circumstances, then yes. Um, also, if you decided, as we were just talking about, um, right, that you, you or your group was the right actor to dole out punishment or to correct the injury done, then you would always, then you would all not always, excuse me, but then you would also um, be worried about right that that risk of um, of fomenting um further divisions. Um, I think if this process happens um, as intended by Smith and others, and we can, I think it's totally reasonable to uh, be concerned about how feasible it is or what kinds of social divisions might exist that inhibit it already, right? We might just be at a point where, unfortunately, but to, to be very realistic, right? The, the kinds of shared values that we have, the amount of shared values that we have, say in American society, Um, but perhaps in Canadian society, to a certain extent, too, are diminishing. And so, if that happens, if you have too too few things in common, then it just becomes hard to sympathize with, um, uh, or almost impossible to to sympathize with other people. Now, of course, my answer, my solution to that would be you (laughs) you would want to have more shared values. What you want to do is actually um, enable people to sympathize with diverse others. And I talk a little bit about this in the Conclusion to um, Smith uh, actually um, spent a lot of time on the kinds of problems that uh, oppressive or extreme economic inequality can cause for sympathetic prospects that when you have two great of class divisions say that the, the rich and the poor become just so socially uh, uh, far from one another that they just, it's impossible for one to know uh, what the other's life is like. And that's really bad from a moral perspective, right? When you have people that don't have that shared core um, or aren't able to sympathize with people.
0: And I do and I do have one more question for you before we head to our formal wrap-up as our time winds down here. So in, in the intro to your book, you and you've talked a bit about it here too, uh, it frequently alludes to what liberalism will, will lose if it only rationally calculates but doesn't feel about a certain way about certain principles. And you say, quote, liberalism need not succumb to the emotional or moral impoverishment that comes with an extreme reliance on rationality. In fact, it it must not if it is going to survive as a meaningful political philosophy. I mean, that that's good unto itself, but I just wanted to throw throw it over to you and say, is there anything you'd like to add to that thought? Because I, I, I said the quote because I thought it was great, but is there anything you'd like to add to that before we head to our formal wrap-up? Because I think that that's very key to a lot of underneath a lot of what we've been talking about as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, I think I would just underscore it. I, I still think I've, I recently had another conversation on a podcast about the the book and uh, uh, um, interlocutor pushed me on the point that isn't, isn't, don't we have too much? So, you know, as I said, I started this book as a dissertation a long time ago. Now I'm old, a decade ago, um, and at that point it felt like I had to convince people that resentment was important. I do not have to convince people of that <laughs> politically. Instead, I have to, you know, answer this other question that he mentioned, which is, don't we have too much? So isn't the shouldn't we get rid of some of this? And I I think um, politics um, is always about what people care about, right? What matters to them. Um, and in a democratic society and a liberal society, we want to take those things seriously and those things matter to us. So it is really important to not act like they don't exist, um, both from a respect, um, uh, uh, perspective that we should, we owe fellow members of our society respect. And then also from, from the other perspective that I mentioned in the book, which is we should be concerned when we don't push people to think through their more um, uh, violent emotions, right that those can often lead to a lot of the political violence that we unfortunately see more of today. And I think the way to get around that isn't to um, wishfully you know hope that those emotions will just go away. Rather try to get people to engage in a deliberate uh, deliberation or rational con- uh, conversation about what concerns them rather than acting like their concerns aren't
0: real, right? And with that, our time has pretty much wound down here. So I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap-up. So Michelle, let me say, we, we talked about a lot. I think the conversation was great. So let, I want to try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Uh, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what resentment is and why we should recognize and sympathize with it? In other words... If you want to leave someone with one or two or just a few takeaways, ultimately, if anything from this conversation, what would those be?
1: Great. So I think resentment is not simply anger. Resentment is a really important emotion that tells us about whether or not people have been harmed or injured. It can connect us to other people through sympathy uh, or empathy And it can help us um, recommit ourselves to rectifying injustice or to being committed to injustice. So if there's any takeaway, I want people to uh, disconnect, as we've talked about already, resentment from pity uh, or or sympathy from pity or compassion or resentment just from the um, negative feeling that we have when we think uh, things are unfair and to focus on all of the additional questions uh, that it gives us when we have it, what is the injury? Was, uh, was there an injury? Who wronged us? Who are victims? Is there injustice? But I think that those questions and the conversation around them is really fruitful um, for liberal citizens. So that's what I hope they take away.
0: That's an excellent place to leave it, I think. So, Michelle Schwarzy, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today.
1: Thanks for having me, Alex.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.